Critics are likely to make enemies, Inspector. You might call it an occupational hazard. I am well. It is you who are dead. Welcome to Avant Bard, a podcast where two theatrically inclined horror fans explore the deepest depths of the human psyche and soul through works inspired by that upstart crow himself, William Shiver and Shakespeare. My name is Megan Gallo. Gal- Gallo? Megan Gallo, like- Megan. I wrote it down because it's like gallows. Like yeah, nine. but no one just says Gallo with one. Gallows. Megan Gallows. But my name is Charlo. There's no S Your at the name end. does not work well with anything but Scarlo, and I was trying to come up with even two, Megan. And I use she, her pronouns. And my name is Matthew James Scardcaz, which works slightly better than Gallo. (laughs) And I use he, him pronouns. And this is our second and sadly final Spooptober episode of 2020. Today, we have a chilling tale of terrifying revenge as we are taking center stage to tell you about 1973's Theatre of Blood, a British horror comedy about an actor who hunts down his critics that have wronged him in a very Shakespearean way. If you haven't seen the film, we're going to be covering all of the big spoilers, so be warned. Also, I want to give a brief content warning for descriptions of violent scenes and mentions of suicide. If you want to watch this film yourself, here's a little secret. Someone put it on YouTube. It it wasn't me. I, I just want to actually make that clear. I did not put it up on YouTube. It is also available through the subscription service Shudder, which is an amazing horror subscription service available through Amazon Prime. Theater of Blood was directed by Douglas Hickox and was released in the heyday of the horror comedy. That's right before the rise of the slasher films and the supernatural horror, your Halloweens and your Amityville horrors. It's right in that area of Young Frankenstein. It also stars one of the masters of horror. Vincent Price. Vincent Price, Megan. You know, you were doing a far worse impression of him earlier. (laughs) It might just be because I'm really happy because I love Vincent Price in this film. But you know, I'ma let it slide. Hello, this is Vincent Price welcoming you to Marquez's acting corner. Did I lose it, Megan? You lost it a bit. (laughs) A standard of the horror genre, Vincent Price has starred in over a hundred films in his career and has two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for both television and film. He starred in the original House of Wax and The Last Man on Earth. And if I had to list... All of the things you probably know him from, we will be here forever. 
he is an art collector, he is a gourmet chef, he is Vincent Price. And how could one sum up the entirety of his oeuvre in a short amount of time, Megan? He's Vincent Price. Some notable things I want to point out that he's in, just because I love them, is that he is Radigan in The Great Mouse Detective. He is Vincent Van Gogh in The Thirteen Ghosts of Scooby-Doo. And he was the voice of the ghost host in an unused version of The Phantom Manor, which is the Disneyland Paris' version of The Haunted Mansion. I do believe they did put him back in recently, though, which is very exciting. Also in this film, we have Diana Rigg who sadly passed away just this year. She was most famous for her role as Emma Peel in The Avengers, not an American Avengers, the British television show. She was only in it for two seasons. She wasn't, like, super comfortable with the fact that she was a sex icon during her time on the show. And in between her first season and her second season, she actually fought to get a higher paycheck. And since it was the 60s, she was kind of lambasted for trying to do so when she was just trying to get equal pay. She's kind of a badass. I kind of love her. She was Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones. I didn't watch Game of Thrones, but I saw a couple of scenes with her in it, and she was a badass grandma lady. I watched most of Game of Thrones, and she's the only, like, purely good person. I mean, she was nominated two times for a guest Emmy just for Game of Thrones. She is a multiple Emmy Award nominee and winner. And honestly, she's pretty great in this film. That will conclude Marquez's acting corner. Now, as for how this film connects to Shakespeare, well, Shakespeare plays have a lot of death in them. And honestly, some of the revenge tragedies are basically the equivalent to modern-day gore-fest films. And Vincent Price's character is obsessed with Shakespeare, and we love the tragedies, and we love Vincent Price, and really, this is just a great film. Can we just talk about it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, it fits into the criteria of our podcast. If you want to fight about it, that's fine. You can at me. Or just come back in November. We begin with some really actually very choice old school credits. I love it. It's got a portrait of, I assume, like, Romeo or Hamlet, Orlando, one of them boys. It's got, like, fancy filigree on it. Mwah! Chef's kiss. And they show us clips of death scenes from different plays and also some not death scenes because they show, like, some from Merchant. There's one we really couldn't place where There were two that I was like, maybe this is Banquo? And the another one that I'm like, maybe this is from a Henry? But one of them I definitely knew was from Othello because it had uncomfortable blackface. Another warning if you are going to watch this film. If that makes you uncomfortable... Skip past the credits. Skip past the credits. It's not necessary. It's nice for people who like long credits and can close their eyes for a second to miss the Othello yeah. showing. But like, yeah, that's a thing. 
I do miss long credits, though. I miss everything being just right up there in the front. And See, I like that for the idea of, like, going to a movie theater and having extra time to go to the bathroom and get your popcorn. Yeah, that sounds great. So the film actually opens with a theater critic and his wife, you know, having a nice breakfast. And he complains about the paper getting his review wrong. It's fine. It's all nice and wholesome. And then he gets a call from the police that he needs to clear some vagrants from a building. Okay, here's my question, though. He's like a stage critic. Why is he clearing this building? Is it his building? It is never explained, Megan. Because I was very confused. At first, I was like, oh, this isn't a critic. Like, I missed the fact that there was anything to do with him being a critic at the beginning, because as soon as they were like, you must clear this building, I was like, ah, he's some sort of law enforcement or something, or a homeowner of this vacant building. It's so strange to me because the reasoning the cops give him is that he has the authority, quote unquote, to get rid of the vagrants, but like, they're cops. On top of our confusion, his wife lets him know that she had this wild dream last night, which, as Shakespeare nerds, we know it's a prophecy. And she says... There was a storm, and he was at the zoo, and there was a lion's cage, and he got trapped, and the lions got out of the cage, and they killed him. And your horoscope, it's like, March is terrible, and he's like, ha ha ha, the Ides of March, ha 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 ha, and he steps outside, and it starts raining, and (gasps) thunder strikes, and I'm like, here we go again. And away we go! And so we cut to him arriving at this building. And he speaks to the cops, and they just tell him to go in and get rid of these vagrants. And again, I just have to question, if the cops are there, and they have, like, billy clubs and shit, why can't they do anything? And then, it's made clear that the cops don't stop these vagrants from surrounding him in this building. And they just start attacking him and chasing after him. I will point out that the room is very strange because it's literally a cage that they're in. So wife's prophecy, lion cage, vagrant cage, rah, rah, rah. This wife prophecy, spoiler alert, is like the only supernatural thing to happen in this movie. I want to know more about her. Oh, give her a sequel. Mm. The prophetic wife. My husband was a theater critic, and he died, but I knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. And George, George, he just didn't listen to me. I'd also want to mention that there is a really great shot as this guy's getting stabbed where he runs into a scrim, and then the blood starts spreading out on it, and then the scrim breaks, and he, like, kind of falls through it, and it's all bloody and... Automatically, I like this cinematographer and this director way more than a lot of other films we've watched just because that shot was just so well done. Maybe it's the horror fan in me, but yes. Because we have this very horror film trope that happens here 
where we just get the voice of Vincent Price with, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. And we're like, who's saying this? Why is this happening? And he goes, it's you, but you're dead. And we're like, I I don't know who that is. Who's you? I don't know, but ooh, intrigue. And then it's revealed that Vincent Price was the cop all along. And he takes off a disguise, a very common Shakespeare trope. Okay, now I get why someone told him that he had the authority to do this because it was a setup. But that, why did he believe it? Yes, Megan. Maybe he just believed in his ego that like, oh, the cops need me. Sorry, darling. The cops who've never once needed me need me suddenly. I bet you that's it. Just feeding into his ego. Yeah. Mm. We get another really good shot, which is from a perspective below this critic, George, looking up at Vincent Price's face. And again, the framing is fantastic, especially for a horror movie, as Vincent Price is leering down at him and us. And we transition into the next scene section with the well-known friends, Romans, countrymen. And suddenly we're in a theater and it's deserted and it's just the vagrants and Vincent Price and a stage manager. It's just cool. They just like live here. I love the stage manager because he's just like this funky little 70s guy. Like he's got like sunglasses and like curly hair and a beard and mustache i mean he just looks like the type of guy you'd find in like a disco that's like hey baby what's up it's me the stage manager and like the stage manager is throwing the vagrants around and i'm like yeah stage manager i bet every stage manager's wanted to do that And we get another great Shakespeare reference. I'm not going to call out all of them because that would take too long. Because it's practically every time Vincent Price's character speaks. He says one of my favorite lines, which is just put money in thy purse from Othello. And he says it as he throws coins at the vagrants. And it's just so good. I just love it. I love the little details. And like, he's taking such sassy lines and being so sassy. So then we cut to the next scene, which is our introduction to the critic circle, who are going to be the victims of this horror film. And as we go around, we learn that these people are absolute pieces of shit. They're garbage people. I'm like, yeah, Yeah. I'm rooting for Vincent Price, my horror man. Yes, man, like. One is a lecher, like, one is an asshole, like, just like a regular asshole. One's like a glutton. It's almost like the seven deadly sins up in here. It's clear that they all suck, and they learn of George's death, the man who just died. And one of them just goes, oh, he finally gets a headline instead of a byline. A man just died, my dude. He was your friend? Eh, co-worker. Peer. At least have, like, a modicum of decency. No, because then we wouldn't get awesome lines like that. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. We find out through a poster that is found on the crime scene that Vincent Price's character's name is Edward Lionheart. Kind of suspicious that, you know, this was a Julius Caesar-themed death. By the way, the last death was based around Julius Caesar, 
where all the senators, as a group, stab Caesar. We also meet in this scene Peregrine Devlin, who at first I thought was a detective to the case. And then it's revealed that he's a fellow critic, and I'm so confused by why this movie has him basically be the main protagonist who is detecting with the detectives. But he's like, not. Why is he at the crime scene? Yes, I don't understand. Why did they invite him? Oh, wait, Megan, I just remembered real quick. It says right here he's the main character of the movie, so he should be in this scene. No, he's not the main character. Well. Edward Lionheart is the main protagonist who we all root for. I mean, that's fair. If we're going by the standard rules of protagonist and antagonist, protagonists are people who want things, and antagonists are people who try to stop them. So, technically, Lionheart is our protagonist, and this guy, Devlin, is our antagonist. They mentioned that the theater that everyone's staying in is called the Burbage Theater. That just tickled me, because Richard Burbage was one of the actors that did Shakespeare and other playwrights in the early modern period. And I was like, oh, hoo, hoo. And then one of the characters said, oh, I thought that burned down. And I was like, oh, like things that happen in history. But it's Burbage! Yes, yes. And the stage manager is leading this man, Hector, into the theater with the promise of an interview with Lionheart, who he says is dead. No, he's actually alive! He's been resurrected! Ooh, hoo, hoo. Interviews for you to break the story, and he's like, Haha, yeah, I'm the best one. Uh-huh. And so he's led into the theater where he comes across a book that has all of the reviews of old Lionheart plays. And this man comes across one that he wrote. It is opened to one he wrote. And he's just like, hmm, not at all suspicious. Hmm, my scathing review of Troilus and Cressida. Hmm. And then from like a descending platform comes Lionheart, dressed in all black leather and feathers with a fucking Julie Tabor-ass mask. He looks like he's from a gay club, and I'm absolutely loving it. He's killing this outfit. And understandably, the critic named Hector is like, uh, it's a little spoopy. Maybe I'll back up a bit, and then all the vagrants are there. And he's like, oh, and the stage manager is like, don't worry, you're among friends. And he's like, oh, okay, good, phew. And Edward Lionheart says such an amazing line to me. Edward Lionheart should narrate my life. Like, I just love it because he's just like, oh, yeah, we were just rehearsing Troilus and Cressida. Specifically, the scene where Hector, thinking he's among friends, is unexpectedly killed by them. That's my humor right there, guys. That's it. (laughs) That's what gets me. It's really good. Like, I paused the film to laugh. It's so straight, so dry, so just like, hmm, remember that, Hector? Your exact situation right now? Then we do find out that something happened two years ago at the Critics Circle Awards. But what? We don't know yet. Meanwhile, I'm just sitting over here like, wait, so his name's literally Hector, and they're gonna kill him the way Hector dies? Yeah. It doesn't work with anyone else who dies in the film. It's just really convenient for this one. 
So I think that Lionheart's just like, mm, that one really matches. So I gotta do that one. Then. There's no George. In the play, Hector is speared, which I'm like, yeah, you could totally do that. But the way that he's fully killed is his body is dragged throughout the whole fucking town. And I'm like, that's a lot. It's the 70s. And I, I was like kind of ready to get myself disappointed, but I was enjoying the film too much. So I give it the okay. I trust you. A line that I love is right before his death. Lionheart goes, oh, I'm sure you'll rise to the occasion. And boom, spring-loaded trap. Hector's flung up amongst the vagrants, and he gets surrounded, he gets attacked, and Lionheart just fucking comes and stabs him through with a spear, and it's so bloody, and I love it. Ah, it's just so refreshing to see such uninhibited, not realistic gore in something. No, but like... They're having fun with it. Yeah. They're not shying away from it, and they're not being tame. They're letting themselves bask in the violence. Yes. We cut to the next scene, which is George's funeral. Oh, poor George. We're all so sad. But excuse me, Vincent Price is in the background dressed like a little gravedigger man. Oh, it's so cute. He's got a little cute little outfit on. He's got a little hat. He's got a shovel. He's so good. And then he quotes some more Charles and Cressida, and we're like, wait a second. You already finished that guy. And then, in the distance, wait a second. It's a freaking horse. Dragging a body down the road. During a funeral. I'm in heaven. It's astounding. He did it. He did the- They did it! He did the death. And of course the mourners are like, um, what? And they look and they're like, oh my god, we know that guy too! Like, there's this whole discussion from the inspector who's there, because obviously there was a murder, and yes. so you go to the funeral, because, you know, murderers often attend the funerals of their victims, which he does. He's just dressed as a gravedigger. It's very obvious, guys, but okay. And there's this whole discussion of like, oh, well, seems like someone hates your circle. Hmm, well, don't, maybe people don't like you. Is there any reason? And they're like, well, we're theater critics. And he's basically just like, I get it then. Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. He just like doesn't offer any suggestions, doesn't say that maybe they should watch out because now two have died within like a day. He's just like, well, sucks to suck. Usually I'm not a fan of when critics are portrayed so shittily because it's usually just characterized as, well, you can't create your own art, so you criticize others. This doesn't get too much into that territory, and I appreciate just how over-the-top and camp everyone is. So much so that it doesn't bother me here. Like, I feel like we're supposed to go, oh, well, these are shitty critics. Yes. These are terrible people who also happen to be theater critics. Mm -hmm. It's not a generalization of the whole career. Devlin's here at the funeral, and off in the distance, he sees a woman. He's like, I swear I know that woman. And he goes over and, oh, it's Diana Rigg. Well, he goes... Oh, it's Edwina Lionheart. Yes. Edward Lionheart's daughter. Yeah. Also, like, Edward, daughter named Edwina? Come on. <laughs> Rude, honestly. But also, I like the name Edwina. I, oh, I do too. And she is a badass. She just 
does the thing where she destroys his soul without even like fully paying attention to him because he's just like ah it's you edwina lionheart and she's like oh it's you peregrine devlin wielder of the brutal aphorism master of the killing phrase my father's murderer <gasps> what but then devlin's like i didn't kill him he's like no, no he, he killed himself. himself and she's like yeah because you said mean things you dumb shit she mentions how devlin never gave her father a good review and he's like well he'd only do shakespeare any good actor can do modern plays too and would illuminate the present bitch what if he just liked Shakespeare a lot? If you can choose to be a professional actor and only do the stuff you want to do, you have the best life. How dare you say that he's not a good actor because he's good enough to get to choose his roles. If you really wanted to and you could get paid and just do it for the rest of your life. I would just do Shakespeare. I honestly don't care about modern plays. I love seeing modern plays. I have no drive to act in a single modern yeah. play. So basically what you're saying, Megan, is... Um, I'm a bad actor. Well, actually, what I was going to say is um, you, like Edward Lionheart, are amazing. And I connect very strongly with you. Because honestly, part of the reason why I love this film so much is the fact that Edward Lionheart's utter devotion to Shakespeare is taken to such extreme levels. He'd make a podcast. Yes. <laughs> Come on. Like, I would invite Edward Lionheart to be on this podcast. Oh, I wish. You're in luck, Megan. No, Marquez, shut up. He's right He's here. here. <laughs> Greetings, Megan. It's I, Edward Lionheart. Wow. So... Are there any questions you may have for me about the immortal bard William Shakespeare? Yeah, my question is, so you killed yourself, but your body was never found. Hmm, suspicious. Except it's not suspicious because we know that you're still alive. Yes, I've already killed two people in this movie and I plan to kill more. But, Megan, I'm afraid I have to go. I have plans within plans in motion. So, see ya. He'd never say that. He didn't even say a single Shakespeare well, Megan, line. Well, no, I was just. Marquez, uh, Megan, I was just. You were not possessed by Vincent no, no, Price. No, I wasn't saying that. Edward Lionheart. I was saying I was. I'm saying I was just so starstruck when he walked in. I couldn't say a word. I was just so amazed by his presence. I would have been more amazed if he said a Shakespeare line. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I had to pop back in. Oh, shit, Marquez, you could talk to him now. Oh, it seems Marquez has popped off to the bathroom in the middle of a podcast recording. Fuck that guy. I just wanted to say... Parting is such sweet sorrow. Hey, Megan, what what I miss? Us moving on to the next scene. <laughs> so in the next scene, we find out that the next play is Cymbeline? So he's going through his season, which is why he's stuck to specific plays. So I'm glad that it's not all tragedies, because that would be a terrible season. I'd love that season, but it's a bad season. 
Cymbeline's not really known for deaths. There are a couple. It's one of his problem plays. So the feeling, the themes, and the genre are a little muddied in Cymbeline. They do say it's going to be like never done before. I'm sure. Yes. I've never seen a brutal murder on a stage of Cymbeline done live. So we cut to a giant chest, like a wooden chest. Yeah. That's in a husband and wife's bedroom. So it got delivered to them to their bedroom? Yeah. That's weird. Maybe the note on it said, please deliver this to Horace and Mrs. Horace's bedroom. Yeah, it's rather strange. They are playing off of Yakimo's hiding in the chest for Cymbeline to fall asleep and he comes out and he basically takes a selfie with her and is like, see, I slept with your wife. <laughs> it's Those really un- good old Shakespearean <laughs> selfies. It's really uncomfortable. No, it's terrible. In, in the play. Um, I like that they're bringing in other elements of Cymbeline into this murder, because that has nothing to do with murder. Well, also, anyone seeing this movie would have no idea what Cymbeline was about. They're just grasping at straws for murders, I think. Which is silly, because there are a lot of murders in Shakespeare that they don't cover. Anyway, on to the murder. Horace is this critic. He has a really rude wife. I don't like her. She doesn't appreciate this chest. The chest is locked. They can't get to it. It's too heavy. He can't move it. He's an old man. So they just go to sleep. And then out comes Vincent Price in a little doctor's outfit. And the stage manager in a little orderly outfit. I love their little costumes they've got. So I'm a person who's very uncomfortable usually in medical gore. Like, I can't do those scenes. They're rough. Because it's kind of way too real. Right. But in this one, they've got like, one, such terrible practice that would never happen in a medical office. So I'm just like, oh, it's fine. Like they do the needle thing where they push it up, but there's also air in it still before they inject it. Well, what I love is the fact that during this, I'm just like, that's not how that would work. These men aren't doctors. I'm like, yeah, yeah they want to kill them. So they put some sleepy juice in them through a big needle. A huge needle. It's a huge needle. And like I said, there's air in it, so they're dead. And like the wife gets hit twice with it. And she wakes up one time and she's like, you're snoring, Horace, stop it. And they're just like, whoop, more juice. My favorite thing is every time she just goes like, ow. Mm. (laughs) It's just so good. Once again, this is a little attention to detail thing that this film does. So what they're going to do is recreate the scene where Imogen wakes up next to a headless corpse. Yes. So they're going to cut off his head. So they've got to make lines on the neck because otherwise, how do you know where to cut a head off? And they make it with lipstick. And it's just silly to me because I'm like, yeah, that's what they've got. I think it's great because while we were watching the movie, Lionheart's like lipstick. And we were both (laughs) like, lipstick? Yeah, because it was like needle, scalpel, lipstick. Lipstick. (laughs) Excusey? So then he gets a saw and he starts sawing off his head and there's blood everywhere. everywhere. We thought that the last one was enjoying the blood. No, they're just getting started. The best thing is it doesn't look like real blood and that's why I'm okay with it. Yeah, because it's like bright red and it's like spurting up into the air. 
And Vincent Price is incredible. I want to read from my actual note, which is Vincent Price is just irreproachable in this role. No criticisms. Every line he says is golden. Every look he gives is perfect. I have no notes, which is very rare for me. He just looks like he's having such a fun time. He just invites you to have a fun time with him. Yeah. Makes me happy. And he leaves, and then it's morning, and a maid shows up, and she's like, Oh, it's morning, hello, breakfast. And she screams, and she passes out, and then the wife wakes up, looks over at Horace, screams, the head falls off onto the floor next to the maid, the maid wakes up, sees it, screams, passes out again. It's very funny. Very much humor. (laughs) And then we cut to the next scene, which is in Peregrine Devlin's house. And then the head is there? I, so... Did it get delivered to him? Is he just seeing a ghost? So Edward Lionheart is inhuman. He just shows up in people's houses and they don't know. And he can, like, teleport places, apparently. And he always has a costume change. Like, I don't know. It's inhuman, his powers. At this point, which three people are dead, the investigator is finally like, hmm, there may be a connection with all these critics being killed. Maybe we should try to protect you all and keep you safe. So let's get everybody to one location. And so they begin the process of rounding everyone up. First up is Trevor Dickman. But uh uh-oh, the person approaching Trevor Dickman isn't with the investigator. It's some hot broad. There's just an uncomfortable scene where he's just trying to cop a feel. And I hate this guy more than anyone else we've met. I'm very excited he's next to die. Yes. Because it is... Very obvious that this hot broad is trying to lure him somewhere for some nefarious reason. Mm-hmm. And she leads him to the Burbage Theater. This stage is incredible. There is a throne upstairs. There are multiple stairs going in different directions on it. It's like multi-leveled. It is dark and gloomy and textured and complex. And I would murder to live there. You might have to. (laughs) You won't. It's a set. But it is very good. And she's led him here because she's an amateur actress and she wants to show him her work. She wants his notes. They walk in onto the stage and he's like, this is weird. Like everyone's in costumes and just wander around saying lines and stuff. And she's like, oh, it's something new we're trying. It's living theater with audience participation. And I was like, wait, before your time, check. Good job. (laughs) Megan and I were very happy the way that she delivered that line. Well, because everyone on the bad side is just so campy and just so into what they're doing. Yes. And they're performing The Merchant of Venice. Okay, no, hold up. That literally has no murder in it. There's the murder of Antonio's reputation because he lost all his ships. Ah, they're going to murder his ships. I see. Well, Lionheart enters in full, gloriously golden garb as Shylock 
quoting Shylock's first monologue in the play, you call me misbeliever, cutthroat dog, and he's just getting into it. It's amazing. I love it. It's... It is exactly what I want out of Vincent Price doing Shylock. But then they weirdly, like, cut to the end of the play, which is weird because that monologue takes place when Shylock first shows up, not during the courtroom scene, which is the scene that they're doing. It's fine. But the woman does explain to us. She says, Megan. Oh. Megan. She looks directly into the camera. Megan and Mr. Dickman, we've made some slight alterations to the text and one rather large cut. Yes, tell me that line again just like that. That is the correct way to say it. Good, keep it coming. I love it. Mm, It's really good. So obviously, they're going to do the courtroom scene with an alteration. Antonio's not going to get saved, and we're going to get that pound of flesh. Mm. And I just want to say... Portia being there as an actual accomplice to a murder that's going to take place makes much more sense for her character and how she acts. Because I hate Portia in this scene, in the play, because she's a bitch for no reason. Portia is the worst lead Shakespeare female. Fight me, anyone. Anyway, they pin him down and open up his shirt. And he has an astrology symbol necklace, which was very popular in the 70s. And also, gross, I hate it. But to save the day, we do have Edward Leinhart being like, no, you know, this is where Portia would save the day and show mercy, but not this time. (laughs) He traces a line around the left side of his chest like he might flay the flesh. And I was like, oh, is he just going to take flesh? And then he stabs the heart. Oh, it's so good. And Dickman screams and he just dies and I love it. And Edward picks up a bunch of flesh, brings it over to a scale, puts it down. And they're like, oh, yes, one pound of flesh, no more, no less. And he's like, it's one pound, two ounces. And then he takes off a little bit and he's like, ah, yes, one pound. (laughs) It's so good. I love this comedy. It's perfectly balanced. It's literally everything I'd want from a Shakespeare tragedy parody. Which this is. Yes. I'm like, thank you. Because really, how is he planning on cutting only one pound? But that's the whole thing. That's why he can't do it. Because if he cuts even one ounce more than a pound, his life is forfeit. Mm -hmm. His everything is forfeit. So that's where it's like, shit, Portia got me. Because it's impossible. Because blood will drip. And even that counts, apparently. Not in this version. Well, also, Megan, um, harming a person is also illegal. That's also the thing that she uses as well. (laughs) Well, yeah, but like, you know. So then we cut to Devlin's high-rise apartment where all the critics are gathered. I mean, it's a nice place. I'd be fine staying there. And they start putting the clues together. George died on the 15th of March, the Ides of March, and- Hector died like Hector. And Horace had his head cut off. (gasps) These murders are reflected exactly in Lionheart's last run of Shakespeare plays. Maybe Shakespeare's the murderer.
That's what I thought they were going for (laughs) when they were talking about it. Megan, I'd watch that film. See, my favorite thing, though, is the inspector's just like, guys, he's a dead guy. Dead guys can't do it. I don't care if there's no body. He's dead. And we get the backstory to the night he died, quote unquote. The Critic Circle Awards, <gasps> two years ago. So they were doing the, like, best actor of the year thing. The, like, this is the greatest. And he was like, I'm gonna get it. Because everyone was saying he was gonna get it. And then they go to announce the name, and he stands up to accept it. (laughs) And then they call William Woodstock this newbie. This absolute trash of a human being. What a absolute... Who would ever vote for William Woodstock? Ugh. Ugh. We never get to meet William Woodstock. (laughs) No, we don't. So then all the critics after the awards go back to Devlin's place and they're all drinking and they're having a great time. And in comes Edward Lionheart dressed up like a little vampire snack. Just walking in and they're like, "Uh, excuse you? And he just goes up to the awards and is like, this is my right. I've come to take my right. Okay, baby, it's okay. And then Edwina comes in, and she's like, Father, stop, don't. You're just as bad as them. Like, she seems really upset by it. She's so upset that he's so upset. And then he gets all introspective and walks out on the balcony. And he starts quoting the entire to be or not to be (laughs) monologue. And I'm like, hell yeah, that's my guy. They do some incredible sound design in this scene, and just the directing is perfect, and everything's great, and we've got him in the background behind glass, but we hear him perfectly, and in the foreground, we have all of the critics talking about what he's doing, but it's very hushed, so if you focus hard enough, you can try to hear them. It's just so unique, and it's an experience, and I reveled in it for a moment because it was just a thing I don't see often, and it was cool. I like it. I would like to take this moment to share something that I learned while doing research for this episode. This movie, Vincent Price considers one of his favorites, and the reason being is that throughout his career, he was always typecast as the -the over-the-top horror character actor. So he never really got to do serious, dramatic works such as Shakespeare. And so when he got the chance to do a non-dramatic horror version of those dramatic, serious Shakespeare roles. He loved it. And it's so sweet to think about that. Just the fact that he absolutely adored doing it because this is the only shot at doing the Shakespearean lines. I love Vincent Price. So he finishes to be or not to be and he jumps off of the balcony. Whee! And he splooshes into the water below. We cut back to the present. What's next? Merchant of Venice. Oh, it's fine. No one dies in Merchant of Venice. No one dies in Merchant of Venice. Phew! And the critics receive a box that is supposedly from Mr. Dickman that has a note that says, I'm sorry to have missed the meeting, but my heart is with you. And we all know what's in that box. We don't have to be the movie seven. We know. 
It's his heart. And they're all like, what the hell? Merchant of Venice isn't supposed to go that way. That's not what Shakespeare wrote. This guy, Devlin, I hate him. I'm so mad because Devlin goes, it's Lionheart, all right. Only he would have the temerity to rewrite Shakespeare. That's what our podcast is all about, is doing reinterpretations of Shakespeare. Come on, my guy. This is episode one shit, Devlin. You can't put the man on a pedestal like that, Devlin. All Lionheart's doing is respecting that work. Anyway. Let's get some more murders in. Yes. Another critic, Oliver Landry, shows up to a wine tasting with his cop companion. And I'd just like to note that the wine tasting is at a store called Clarence and Sons. It's very subtle, actually, and they only show it for a split second. Just as he's walking in. Yep. And since we know that it's Richard III that's next, that's very relevant. What happens to the cop? The cop doesn't go in with him, right? No, he just says, oh, I'll just be about an hour. And the cop's like, okay, I'll just stand here. Why do they allow that? They're supposed to be under police protection. I think cops are incompetent. Ugh, I go mad. I go mad. Like, I want them all to die, but I'm like, come on, try to keep them alive. Don't make it so easy for Edward. And to prove my point, we go down to the cellar, and we see a shadow that's all hunched over that's reciting now is the winter of our discontent. And, yeah, it's our boy. It's Edward Lionheart. So, like, this guy does not turn off. He has no audience. He's saying this to no one. He's alone and he's just like, "Uh, yes. (laughs) He's getting into character, you know. And like, who couldn't though in that location? Because it is this gorgeous wine cellar and there's just like vaulted ceilings and like 300 lit candles. And these are practical candles. They have to be. It's the 70s. Some freaking PA had to go around and light all of these candles and be like, okay, none of these can go out during this shot. Like, they could put in some mirrors to make it more. I doubt it. The way that they are, I don't think that it's mirrors. I think it's just a bunch of candles. And, like, respect. It's gorgeous. It's, again, the detail that went into this film. Yeah, it's astounding. That's unnecessary. You don't need candles. There's nothing about candles in this scene of Richard. But it's great, and I love it, and I appreciate it. And upstairs, we see Oliver. He's having a good time tasting some wine, and it looks like everyone around him is as well. But, hmm, this leader of the wine tasting seems familiar. It's the stage manager, and he offers for Oliver to taste a rather rare wine in the cellar. And then we see as he goes towards the cellar that all the other people at the wine tasting are just the vagrants dressed up fancy. Because they have costumes from the theater! I absolutely love it. Also, how did you get rid of everyone else for the wine tasting? Let's not get into the logistics of how they set all of this up. So I think it's a fake wine tasting and Edward Lionheart just like broke into the place. Yeah, that's fair. And so Oliver is led to our particular 
butt of wine where he is confronted by Edward Lionheart. What? But he's dead. Wait, we've been over this. Uh, everyone does it. <laughs> like Clarence and Richard III, the man is drowned in wine. Once again, Mr. Lionheart does the thing where he's like, ah, uh, yes, in Richard III, there was a character named Clarence <laughs> who was drowned in a butt of wine. I would like you to try out for that part. My thing is, after he dies, Lionheart takes the time to get the lid on, hammer it on, and goes, I hope he travels well. So good! And then he just leaves. He just, like, walks out. I'm sorry for the person who owns that wine cellar. Because they would like, be like, mm, this wine has a strange taste. Tis man! Yeah, because they'd probably just cork it. They wouldn't open the whole butt. Yep. Oh, no! Cutting back to the real world of boring inspectors, Inspector Dipshit suspects Edwina did it. And they take her in for questioning. That's it. They really don't have any leg to stand on. They're like, well, he's dead, and she loved him, so she did the killing. I'm like, but he's not dead. It's fine. And then Devlin goes for his weekly constitutional at a fencing club. But, like, one of my favorite things is what we see is the back of the sign that says, closed due to unforeseen circumstances, which is probably what's supposed to be facing out. And then we see a blind man flip that, which I'm like, aha, unforeseen. But it's one of the vagrants pretending to be blind. And then we see fencing lessons, which is what Devlin saw. Mm. So he goes down, and of course, it's supposed to be closed. So there's only one person there. A stranger who's never been to these fencing classes. Okay, it's Lionheart doing like a bad French accent. Yeah, I like it. He's like, oh, I have never come. Perhaps you can offend me. Good sir, I see you don't have a ball on the end of your rapier. Well then, let me slowly remove yours. Now we are both, uh, oh, what is this voice? Um, Evenly matched. Okay, but like literally I love the fact that he's just like, okay, I'll leave in the playing field then. I love that. Like, it's a real duel. And he's like, oh, by the way. I'm Lionheart. I'm Lionheart. You thought I was dead, bitch. I lived. Excuse you, Megan. I believe the exact words he says are, Lionheart is immortal. He can never be destroyed. Never. Never. I want to love myself as much as Edward Lionheart loves himself. That is self-love on a level I could never hope to achieve. And Devlin can't even enjoy the self-love because he's just like, no, you're dead. How did you survive? So we get a flashback. And the vagrants accidentally saved his life because they were like, oh, cool, a dead body. We'll steal things from it. And he was still clutching the award that he stole. And then he woke up and they were like, oh, shit, it's alive. And then I guess he was like, I own you all now. You are all my minions. And they were like, all right. All right. We're henchmen looking for work. And he went, oh, brave new world. When he woke up from almost drowning. Because Tempest, get it? <laughs> we just covered that. Oh, so good. 
He also explains to Devlin that since the next play in line is Romeo and Juliet, that this is the dueling scene. What? Here's my thing. You could just say Hamlet. Yes. Here's what I don't get. Well, yes, of course, poisoning would be more readily accessible to society's mind for Romeo and Juliet deaths. And then I was like, oh, but he doesn't want to kill him yet. He wants to play with him. And then I went, but the creators decided the plays. It doesn't have to be Romeo and Juliet no. at all, also, ever. Also, what do they mean? Do they mean Mercutio and Tybalt and Romeo? Do they mean Romeo and Paris at the end? None of these are official duels. None though. of them are fencing. And like, it is strictly fencing. It's like, a fencing duel which, in Hamlet. Yeah, if it's in Hamlet, then that makes the most sense. It's perfect. It just makes no sense in Romeo and Juliet. Especially with it's like, ah, we're fencing and your thing is sharp. That's what happens in Hamlet. Also, I let you live, which doesn't happen in... Any of them, anywhere. Yes, I have a pet theory for, I just think he let him live because there were more plays than there were critics to kill. Yeah, I could see that. What I would have done if I just wanted to play with him was I would be Juliet and I would pretend to be dead. And then he'd come and be like, what the hell? His body, the dead man's body. And he'd be freaked out and then he'd be like, bitch, I'm alive. Ha ha. It was a fake. Or you make him Juliet. And you feed him something that makes him think that he's been poisoned and he just passes out and you talk to him while he's like lying there thinking that he's dying and then he wakes up in the hospital and it's like, you thought you were dying, but you were just Juliet with the potion. Or you could have had him wake up amongst the corpses of his friends. See, all of these would be great. This is honestly the lowest point of this film. Yeah, because it is the one that makes the least sense. Yeah, and us being nitpicky, like, it's still a very enjoyable scene. But it's just when they were like, ah, yes, Romeo and Juliet, I see. I'm like, what? What? (laughs) You're fencing. I swore you were going to say Hamlet. What? I thought he was going to say Hamlet, too. But he does hurt Devlin. Yes, a lot. And he slashes him up, like, a lot. They're both getting at each other. Yeah. They're both bleeding. Of course, because every scene has one. There's an amazing moment where Devlin is like, so you murdered all of them. You're a murderer. And Lionheart looks at him and says, how many actors' lives have you destroyed with your reviews? How many careers have you ruined that have led people to go without jobs, without food, without all of this? And I'm like, shit, he got you there. But Lionheart is a good sport and gives Devlin a sword back after... He disarms him. Well, yeah, because he's not done with him. As he says at the end, I'll kill you when I'm ready. I'll make you suffer like you made me suffer. Though I get it. Why even do this part? You could just skip this one. So this one (laughs) reminds me a lot of the Princess Bride. Okay. With that whole like to the pain bit. Yeah. I know that that's not connected to it at all because timing, it doesn't work out. But like, it just gives me that vibe. So I still dig it like i do still think that the scene is the most confused scene of the whole movie Mm -hmm. but i'm okay with lionheart wanting to toy with devlin yeah i just wish also that devlin was more of a character well yeah he's supposed to be like the most acceptable of the critics i guess but he's not he's a dick yeah 
Anyway, he passes out, then wakes up in the hospital, and the cops are next to him, and they go, Othello is next. There is a really funny bit where the deputy is reading Othello, and he opens his mouth to say what happens in Othello, and the main detective is like, no, 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 no. Devlin can tell me what happens in Othello. That guy just read the whole play, probably. He's doing research, let him! But it's clear that Othello is next, and so we cut to our next victim. Sultry. It sounds like adultery. It does, that's what I was thinking. And he has a wife, and he is a very jealous man, apparently. And it turns out that Lionheart has been coming to his wife for weeks. Which we don't know at the beginning of the scene, but she welcomes him so openly into her bedroom where she's, like, practically naked to massage her, that it's like, the only options are he's in a disguise, which she should have been like, hey, you're not my usual guy, or... He's been going there for weeks, which is then told to us at the end of the scene. And it's like, what? This guy has been planning. Sultry gets told that he should come home. By the stage manager. Who's like, watch your girl, bro. Watch your girl, bro. Watch your girl, bro. The husband, Mr. Sultry, sees Lionheart enter the house. He doesn't know it's Lionheart, but he sees him enter the house. The cop is just like, oh, yes, sir. I see you all the time. What? And he goes up and he hears. Uh, uh huh. Oh, is that good? Is that good? Oh, do you like that? Which I'd be like, stop talking when you're massaging me. This is weird. Yes, I don't like that. But like, he's saying it loud and doing it so that his plan works. And like, fair, but it must be a really good massage for her to be okay with it. Yeah, and then Saltree just like starts banging on the door and he's like, Oh, that's my wife, and Lionheart holds her down, and she's just like, oh, that's my husband. If he catches us, he'll kill me. First off, girl. You can't get massages? If your husband will do something to you, even if you get a massage, run. If you know that he's the type of person that would do that, get out of there. Nothing is worth that. You are worth more than that. And so he comes in, and he's like, strumpet. He starts quoting Othello, and I'm like, whoa, he's a critic. And then he starts killing her. He starts smothering her. And Lionheart starts whispering in Sultry's ear, I'm not the first one. Your wife has slept with like 5,000 guys. He says like 20. I know he says 20. 5,000. I mean, 20's 20 is a, a lot. big number. And Lionheart just like deftly leaves. You better murder her. Bye-bye. He doesn't just completely leave. No, he just sneaks out of the house, though, and then he's like, oh, excuse me, officer. (laughs) This is the most wild thing in the movie. We died. Lionheart goes up and goes, officer, I believe that Mr. Sultry is murdering his wife. Oh, thank you, sir. What? Oh, thank you. Thank you for the tip, sir. Have a nice day. I'm gonna check on it. Like, what? It's so funny. I... Love it. I don't know if that was, like, just bad acting or, like, an intentional joke. Either way, good job. You got us. It did make me laugh. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. And so then the cops and Devlin show up, and they arrest Sultry because he had murdered his wife. And they're confused. They're like, he didn't kill Sultry. And Devlin's like, nuh-uh-uh-uh-uh. He might as well be dead. He won't do well in prison. 
I feel worse for the wife. Yeah, I'm like, you killed an innocent woman who was in a terrible relationship. Yeah, bad call, Lionheart. Come on, Eddie. Not a fan of that one. She didn't deserve it. The next play is Henry VI Part 1, which means I have no idea what murders will happen. Megan, it's okay. No one has ever read or seen Henry VI Part 1, so... I don't think you have anything to worry about. Okay, so we're at a hair salon. All right. Someone in Henry the Sixth Part One gets a haircut, maybe, at some point. Miss Moon is going to get a haircut, so maybe that happens in Henry. Fun fact, Miss Moon is played by Vincent Price's future wife. Oh. They met on the set. <gasps> oh, my heart. He murdered her. Oh. So... It's a hair salon. We've got the stage manager coming in being like, oh, sorry, your usual guy's not here. But, oh, you got to use Butch. He cuts the hair of Princess Margaret. And Lionheart comes in. He's got a brown afro. He is acting very camp gay. So gay. I would be offended if I didn't like it so much. I don't know. It's well, not offensive. Well, because not... the thing is, they're not making fun of gay people. It's just like, this is his disguise. Yes. It's just another character. He's just a camp hairdresser. Because he's camping all the roles that yeah. he puts on. So it's just like, and this is a gay campy one. Listen, if you're offended by this, I completely understand. It was fine for me. I've seen so much worse. But I also like it also because he flirts with the police officer, which I think is a tactic in order to weaponize homophobia in order to keep the police op- officer away. Yes. Oh, yeah, I could see that. So really like putting him off his game of protecting her by being like, who's this slab of meat? I dig that. I dig weaponizing someone's homophobia against them in order to get what you want. So he starts doing Mrs. Moon's hair, and he's putting these metal rollers in them that are definitely not hair curlers. No. And she's like, these are weird. And he's just like, uh-huh, honey, it's fine. Then he quotes Henry the Sixth, part one. And she's like, Shakespeare? And he's like, ah, oh, yes, Henry the Sixth, part one. It's a very interesting play. Don't you agree? Particularly the scene where Joan of Arc gets burnt at the stake. You better be ready to kill her right now, because this is very obvious. The best part is she completely is like, yeah, okay. Uh, honey, several of your colleagues have just been murdered. In ways that are from Shakespeare plays. Maybe catch on a bit faster (laughs) at this point. But no, he's literally tying her up and she's just like, I'm a little uncomfortable. You know, when I get my hair done, I always (laughs) like to get tied up to the chair. So yeah, he electrocutes her and she burns. And she starts like screaming and they cover her mouth and she's like, it's very loud. He's like yelling at her. Yeah, she's screaming, even if it's muffled. There's the sound of electricity going off and and the the cop doesn't notice anything until the smoke from her hair and skin reaches him and he's like wait a second that's strange maybe pick up on it a little faster and then he goes downstairs and oh she dead and they're gone 
First off, if you are being protected by the police, don't go get your hair done. Don't go to a wine tasting. These critics are all people who would just go throw parties on the beach during COVID. Yes. They'd be like, I could go maskless. I've been safe, so I know it's safe for me. These critics are super spreaders. Yes. We get back to our girl, Edwina. And she's like buddy-buddy with Devlin now. They ended up releasing her because now the cops believe that it's definitely Edward. Obviously, as though they couldn't have deduced this at any point earlier. And Edwina reveals that Edward has contacted her (gasps) and wants to turn himself in, but only to Devlin. And only if he comes alone. (laughs) Haha, not at all suspicious. No. Edwina can come. Yes. So like Edwina and Devlin. And then when the scene ends, it's obvious that she's in on it. Yeah, you're like, okay. Uh, Okay. You want to take Devlin alone to your father. Uh Uh-huh. Okay, good. And we find out that the next one is gonna be Titus. Marcus! Megan, why do you love Titus Andronicus so much? Because it's so bloody and violent and gory, and there's so many deaths to choose from Marcus. Are there so many deaths to choose from, Megan? Yeah, or at least tortures. They're taking things that weren't deaths and making them into deaths. But Megan, you can't see this through an audio format, but I'm leaning in. Are there that many options? Yeah, Yeah. No, Megan. I think there's really only one really good option. Oh, you mean there's really only one option to choose For this victim, who has two beloved puppies, who are their children, who they love so dearly. Yes, that's that's what I mean. I get it. I need, however, before we get to that death, to step-by-step retell Lionheart's plans to get to this guy. This guy's actually... Well secured. Yes. For once. He's got a bunch of cops surrounding his house. Because also everyone who was going to guard everyone else, everyone else is dead except for Devlin. So now they all just have to guard this guy. So Lionheart and his vagrants construct a fake rubber mask of Lionheart's face. Strap it to one of the vagrants. Have that vagrant conveniently and casually drive by the police. (laughs) The police incompetently do a double take and say, That's him! After him. And all of them leave. All of them leave. Not a single one remains to protect this one guy. And then the police just chase this guy down, leaving... Edward and company to arrive in a TV van. And they're like, ah, this is that popular show that totally exists. This is your dish. And they go into the second to last critic's house and they're like, surprise, Euron, this is your dish. And he's like, oh my God, what an honor, my dish. And they feed him this pie. And he's like, oh my god, I'm so honored. Where are my puppies? Where are my children? I want to share this with my puppy children. And cue Lionheart quoting Titus Andronicus saying, you know the scene from Titus Andronicus 
were Titus bakes Tamora's kids into pies. And he, I don't understand. Where are my puppies? I don't understand I, why you're quoting Titus Andronicus at me. Well, he cooked her kids into pie. Where are my, my babies? Where are my babies? My puppies, where are they? Well, you see, he baked them into pies and fed them to her. Oh, such a scrumptious pie, but where are my puppies? And then he reveals the vagrants in the kitchen and the stage manager lifts up a serving dish to reveal a pie with two puppy heads on it. I would be very disgusted if not for the fact that these puppy heads are just like fake stuffed puppy heads. Yeah, they look like slightly realistic stuffed animals. They are already cooked, so it's not like we got to see any gross bits of the puppies. There's no shown violence against them. It was just like, see, there's some fluff on this pie. And I was like, phew, because I'm one of those people that always has to look on does the dog die when I see a scary movie. And listen, it does die in here. Yeah, the dog does die. So warning if that'll make you sad. And then they lay him out on the table and force feed him a lot of this pie to make him choke on the pie. And then another great Lionheart zinger, he says he just didn't have the stomach for it. All we got left is Devlin. And they're like, we've got this meetup planned. So obviously the cops are going to be in on it. Everyone's going to be wired. They've all got code names. Devlin is Hamlet. The investigators Fortinbras. The deputies Horatio. I don't know why. And they have this whole big spy set up to try to have Edwina lead Devlin to Edward so that they could have like this big sting. But for some reason, Devlin trusts Edwina enough to be like, Psst, I've got a wire in my car. And Edwina's like, okay, let's leave the car then. So Edwina leads him out of the car to talk to him. And then a horse and buggy drive by and the vagrants knock out Devlin, pull him onto the cart and drag him off to see Edward. And Edwina gets in the car where the deputy's in the back He's hiding in the trunk. And she drives him to the train tracks and gets out of the car. And the inspector calls the deputy and it's like, what's happening? And the deputy's like, we're driving a place. Wait, what's that sound? And then we just hear, the deputy died. Like, what? He just dies. I mean, fair. But that must be like the most terrifying death because you're in an enclosed space. And you have no idea what's going on. And then all of a sudden you just get fucking hit by a train. Especially because you think you're with people you trust. Yes. Terrifying. Terrifying. This like offhanded joke is like super scary actually. Yeah, it's so quick. It's like a blink and you miss it moment. But it's just like, (laughs) by the way, you got hit by a train. (laughs) What? What? So we're taken back to the Burbage Theater. And it is set in a restaging of the 1970 Critics Circle Awards. Devlin's tied up and strapped to this weird apparatus. And Lionheart comes out and is like, Oh, you think my performances aren't original? What about my murders? That's not what he says, but that's basically the gist. And like, Devlin's being kind of a dick and is like, I'll never capitulate to you, Lionheart. Lionheart's like, okay. 
Remember the last play? You remember King Lear? <gasps> Megan and Marquez do. We do. We do. We know King Lear. What death's it going to be this time, guys? Not a death. No. Again, taking a little liberty. Mm-hmm. But he has strapped two burning hot daggers to this contraption, like, on a trolley that's, like, up in the air. and Weighted with a sandbag. Yes. And if Devlin doesn't present the Critics Award to Lionheart, he's going to get his eyes gouged out, probably dying in the process. I mean, his eyes aren't going to be gouged out. They're going to be gouged in. in. Yeah, the he's going to die. The swords will go into his brain. He's going to die. He's just going to get murdered through the eyeball. And he's like, I won't do it. And then they're like, okay, we're going to slit the bag. My stage manager over here and the stage manager takes off the wig and facial hair and sunglasses and it's freaking Edwina Lionheart. I will say there are very few things in films that surprise me and are actual like good twists. This is one of them. This was amazing. We didn't see this coming at all, which like we should have. It's pretty obvious. But, like, she was driving the other car. How could she get there so fast? Know what I love about this, Megan? What? It's a woman dressing up like a man. A very common Shakespeare trope. (laughs) I just absolutely love that, like, there's a final reveal of just, like, yeah, it was me the whole time. Okay. We're all shocked. And Devlin's shocked. But he's like, I will not say your name. William Woodstock, William Woodstock. And Lionheart's like, Say my name, say my name. I'm going to murder you. What don't you get? And Devlin says, As King Lear said in his greatest moment, Never, 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 never. Not Lear's greatest yeah, moment. Yeah, is, is that his greatest moment? Does anyone say that that's his greatest moment? And also he's saying it like, I'm never going to do something where Lear is saying Cordelia's never coming back. Like, she's never going to breathe again. She's never, 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 never. Devlin, stick to criticism. (laughs) And when that happens, we start to hear police sirens. Oh, great. Devlin's going to get saved. And the vagrants refuse to stick around. No, they're like, uh, we don't want to get arrested. We don't want to go with the cops. Edwina's like falling apart, trying so hard. She loves her dad. And Lionheart's like, we're going to set the whole theater on fire. We're going to burn it down, which I'm like, oh, that's what they thought happened before. Mm -hmm. So he's like, we're burning it all. He's going to die in the fire. Everything is done. The end. This is our grand final gesture. So he starts doing that. And Edwina's like, help him. Like to the vagrants, to the vagrants. And they're running. And then. A vagrant grabs the award and smashes Edwina across the head. And she falls down. And Lionheart's all leer and he's like, murderers, traitors, all that line that's said about Cordelia. And then they have a really tender moment where they talk to each other with Lear and Cordelia lines. And then the police come in and Lionheart's holding Cordelia in his arms and they see him through the flames and he shouts, you are men of stone. And it's so good. And then he starts climbing up the building. (laughs) And the police saved Devlin. Yeah, I hate it. I'm mad. I wanted Devlin to die. 
I care about Lionheart way more than Devlin. Devlin deserved it. I don't care what you say. But Lionheart starts carrying Edwina up the building like King Kong. She's dead. Yeah, and he's quoting Lear. He's obviously just gone like Lear is at the end of the play. And she's like, she's dead as Earth. And then there's a big ass explosion. Yeah. And suddenly he's flung back through the theater onto the ground to his death. And I'm like, that was fast. Yes, it was very sudden. And it's just like, well, he's gone. And in a very clue moment, they gotta leave it off with a little zinger. As Devlin remarks, a remarkable performance. He was overacting as usual, but he knew how to make an exit. And then the credits just roll. (laughs) And it's so jarring (laughs) that the movie just kind of... Very suddenly ends. For a movie that has had very good pacing, it's just very suddenly, he's dead and it's over. Yep. All right, that's Theater of Blood. Any final thoughts on Theater of Blood, Megan? I've got a thought that I think Shakespeare would have if he saw this film. Tell me. Sin of self-love possesseth all mine eye, and all my soul, and all my every part. Because this was really like a love poem to Shakespeare and his weird deaths he puts in stuff. So I think Shakespeare would be like, I did do good. What would you rate Theater of Blood, Marquez? I would rate it one Critic Circle Award out of one for my boy, Edward Lionheart. Because in all honesty, if he'd just gotten the award, maybe he wouldn't have killed all them people. And what would you rate Theater of Blood, Megan? I would rate it my innumerable love for Vincent Price out of, yeah, the one Critics Circle Award he deserved to win. Yeah. Also, all the awards that Vincent Price deserved to win in his lifetime. Yeah. This movie's good. Uh, highly recommended. And, like, literally perfect for the end of October. Yes. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for us here on Avant Bard. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we will see you anon. Avant Bard is created by Matthew James Marquez and Megan Charlo. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash avantbardpod. We would like to thank Riley Allen for the creation of our theme music, Cloverkin for our logo artwork, and everyone in the audience for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about AvantBard, you can visit us on all social media platforms at AvantBardPod.